Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Derek Rishmaui. I'm your host for the show today and uh, we're, we're glad to have you back listening to us on this show. We talk about theology, church, culture, politics, all of it. Uh, and we're back for another episode with Alistair Roberts, uh, who is joining us all the way back across the pond. Alistair, hello. Good to be on again. Good to be on again. Um, and wanted to say thank you if you're a Patreon subscriber. Before we get into things, um, wanted to clue you in on a couple things. One thing that's happening soon is that uh, in addition to our regular shows, we have been starting a new thing where we, the four of us answer specific questions that you send in. So last month we had four small video audio recordings on the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, this month we're, we're answering your question about kind of essential theological primer books. So all four of us will be recording uh, short answers and you can, uh, for a small monthly Patreon subscription, uh, get in on that information. And so feel free to email us your questions, sign up uh, and look for that content. One more thing also for folks who are uh, listeners of the show is that ETS conference in San Diego is coming up in about a month or so, and Matt and I will be doing a little bit of a meetup because we'll be there. Andrew and Alistair are too cool to show up to ETS uh, and San Diego. They, they don't like the sun. They don't like good weather. Uh, they're just too acclimatized to, to, to England. But Matt and I will be there, and so look for the details on that. We'll be releasing that soon. So if you want to meet up, hang out, chat theology, all that sort of thing, uh, that will be coming soon. On to the show today, though, we have uh, we have a very exciting show. We have a guest today, Dr. Gerald McDermott, who's joining us all the way from Beeson Divinity School. He's the Anglican Chair of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School at Samford. He teaches their history and doctrine courses, the author of many, many books. Uh, most recently, he had one, um, Everyday Glory, kind of a theological exploration of Jonathan Edwards' view of typology, but also uh, he's got a new book edited out called um, Rethink Was It Rethinking Israel? Uh, and it's it's wait no it's not called no that's not a new book no that's, the new the new the, the, the Israel matters and the new Christian Zionism I'm sorry I confused that with the very interesting Theopolis uh, discussion on the subject today but we're having him on to talk about this subject, the new Christian Zionism. So we're really excited to have you on. Uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Derek. It's my privilege to be on this podcast. So so I just want to get into it really, really quickly for, for folks who haven't read the book and for who maybe haven't been joining along in the conversation. Um, what is the new Christian Zionism? And uh, how is it different from the old Christian Zionism for, for folks who want to follow that discussion a little bit and kind of wade in gently? Well, good question. The first and most important thing is that uh, um, the new Christian Zionism, which, by the way, is a collection of essays by about 10 of us uh, on the editor of the book. Um, so it's sort of, it's so, yeah, it is a new theological movement. Um, it has nothing to do with dispensationalism. That's the first thing. The old Christian Zionism was largely propelled from a dispensationalist theological framework. 
Our proposals have nothing to do with dispensational theology. We respect the previous dispensationalists. Uh, we, we don't all agree with all of their uh, presumptions. Um, and we're also more than some of the old Christian Zionists. We are willing to criticize the modern state of Israel, uh, although we believe it's still a light to the nations. Um, we are largely agnostic on eschatology. You know, some of the old dispensationalists, um, and currently, um, uh, have a very, have very elaborate eschatological schemes. They know what's going to happen when, and we're not, uh, as a movement, we aren't so sure what's going to happen when, although we believe there is a future for the people of Israel, the Jewish people of Israel, and also a future for the land of Israel. And also, we, um, you know, the new Christian Zionism talks about Christian Zionism that's lasted for 2,000 years. And most people think of Christian Zionism uh, of the dispensationalist variety that only arose in mid-19th century. And we say, hey, it went back 2,000 years, uh, particularly the first three centuries. It sort of went underground in much of the Middle Ages. Uh, it came up above ground in the 16th century with the Puritans, not the 17th and 18th, it started in the 16th. So it's got a 400-year modern history, and in the Reformed tradition, I like to point that out too, because most Reformed folks uh, um, uh, think uh, Zionism is a dirty word, and there's a long Reformed understanding of, of Zionism among the Puritans. Wow. Okay. That, so that's so, so essentially we've got a non-dispensational focus on uh, a future for the land of Israel and a future for the particular ethnic people of Israel. Yes. Uh, or you want to clarify that? Well, well the... actually that's a good way you said it. It's better than most. Um, but it's still, the word ethnic, um, you know, depending on how you define it, uh, you know, the original ethnos in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation, I, I would add, uh, is probably better def, uh, um, uh, translated as nation. Uh, mm. And the reason why I point it out is because many people think Judaism is a race. And that's why, you know, the UN famously in 1975 uh, denounced Zionism as racism. But Judaism has never been a race of people. From the very beginning, when when Abraham circumcised his slaves, who were probably of a different what we would call race, and the mixed multitude, uh, you know, coming out of Egypt was mixed, probably lots and lots of Egyptians, uh, uh, and you look at David's lieutenants, uh, different races, different nations from the ancient Near East, and you go to Israel today, you see black Jews, you see yellow Jews, you see white Jews, you see brown North African Jews. So Judaism has never been a race, and it's often misunderstood as that. Um, uh, I, I would call it a genealogy rather than a race, uh, or even an ethnic group, which often suggests race today. Okay, so so with that clarification, you've got this this trans ethnic nation that shares a genealogy and a history, a language, and and presumably the issue of the promises of God. So let me, if I had asked you, give me your give me your boilerplate 
your quick your quick argument for okay so why why do we think why do you think that uh this this specific group needs a continuing future uh in in the particular sense that you're arguing for a particular future land particular future for this for this nation within Christian, like according to Christian theology, as opposed to uh, what you would see as rival uh, views. Why, why does it need it? Well, now I don't mean to... What's your argument for it? To diminish your question. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, my argument for it is that um, as a biblical Christian, I would say the Bible teaches it. And there we go. many of us... Christians, in fact, most Christians have missed it because we've been trained to miss it. We have been trained in supersessionism. Now, that's a fancy theological word that probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with, but for those who aren't, it uh, comes from the word supersede. And it's the classic, uh, sad to say, Christian view since at least the fourth century um, that the Gentile church supersedes Jewish Israel so that um, since 30 AD or 33 AD whenever you date the resurrection at that date God transferred the covenant from Jewish Israel to the Gentile church so that after 30 AD um, God is no longer concerned with with the Jews who have rejected uh, his son as Meshiach Messiah and the land of Israel that little strip on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean has no more significance than New Jersey those two things the people in the land have been totally the Jewish people and that little land have been totally eclipsed after 30 AD um, uh, by 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 the worldwide Gentile church that's supersessionism and most Christians have believed the Bible teaches supersessionism. Uh, I, in this new movement of scholars called New Christian Zionists, um, uh, believe the Bible teaches the opposite. And we're trying to uh, encourage people to rethink Israel, therefore. What are some of the deeper theological commitments that are informed one way or another by a supersessionist or anti-supersessionist theology? How does it play out in the larger framework of theology? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, um, who is God? It's very easy in a supersessionist framework, which most of us have been trained in, to think of God, the Christian God, as someone distinct from Israel, as a God distinct from the Jews, you know, the Jews have been left behind and Israel has been left behind, you know, ironically, uh, uh, it just occurs to me that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even, didn't even plan it. Just walked right into it. <laughs> walked right into it. Um, you know, they've been left behind. So God is the God of Jesus Christ, but Israel, and nah, it doesn't have anything to do with Israel anymore. So it, it affects our view of who God is, who, who the true God is, and who Jesus is, and for Christian there isn't anything more there is anything more important than Jesus, and Jesus somehow now is not Jewish. 
Jesus somehow, and, and uh, in fact, the mainstream view is that Jesus came to start a new religion called Christianity to, um, to break from, to reject the Judaism of his day. And so Christianity is fundamentally un-Jewish. And, you know, Alistair, I, I think you would agree that is a fundamentally unbiblical and therefore we would say truly fundamentally unchristian way of thinking of Jesus. And it, and it affects then so many doctrines and so many ways we think of the church, of God, of the Christian life, and of Jesus himself. I think certainly if we give the true weight to the title Christ, it's very hard to escape the implications of Christ, of Jesus's um, destiny and identity being bound up with that of Israel. I think one of the things I've found particularly important is the way that we read the Old Testament and how um, there are a number of themes and questions and tensions that are opened up by the new by the Old Testament. And when we come to the new, how do we see those? resolved? How do we see them playing out? How do we see them continuing? And it's in those sort of knotty questions of, do we believe that this is all reaching a denouement in Christ's death and resurrection and the establishment of a largely Gentile church? Or are there some themes that are still straining forward to something more or that relate to something beyond that specific reality? Those are the sorts of questions that I think are very much at the heart of these um, questions about supersessionism. And let me try to get specific about what you just said, and I really like what you just said, uh, Alistair. Uh, it gets to, I think, the trustworthiness of God and God's promises. Uh, God promises explicitly over and over again uh, in the Old Testament, which I like to remind people is 77% of the Protestant Bible and 80% of the Catholic Bible. And, and it was Jesus' Bible. Uh, all through the Old Testament, God makes promises about uh, the Jewish people that they would be his people forever. As long, he says in Jeremiah 31, as Alistair pointed out in a recent writing of his, uh, as long as the sun, moon, and stars are still in the sky, the Jewish people will be his people forever. Now, the last I checked last night, the moon and the stars were still in the sky. Uh, and then he also makes all kinds of promises uh, about the land, in fact, a thousand times in the Old Testament, about how important the land of Israel is to him. And so if supersessionism is right, which is what most of the church has been indoctrinated in, then in, then in some way, God, is not, God has not uh, fulfilled his promises about either the Jewish people or the land of Israel. Now, the typical way to deal with that is the Reformed way, um, and even Catholics do this too, uh, since they follow Augustine on this, that uh, they spiritualize all the promises about the Jewish people and, and the land of Israel to refer to the church, which is largely, which is almost entirely Gentile now, and the whole, they move now to the whole world as, as opposed to simply the land of Israel. But I would say to an audience that is largely reformational, that that is a violation of the Reformation um, biblical um, hermeneutic of a plain sense reading of the Old Testament. Now, it seems to me there are a lot of different 
positions and various camps within this particular debate. Some would want to give a lot of weight to the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's Jewish, while denying a particular um, future for Israel as a nation, someone like N.T. Wright, for instance. On the other hand, you have people who will argue for a dual covenant position, um, and there will be a host of other positions that sketch out some sort of line through these questions. Um, could you give just a brief sketch of some of the positions that we can find within the current landscape and some of the um, the things that drive them to hold their particular positions and maybe some of the problems associated well, with Well, I mean, to follow up on your two camps you just mentioned, you know, N.T. Wright is probably the most influential biblical scholar in the world today, bar none. And he's even playing a huge role in, in, in the thinking of Catholics today. You, you look at Bishop Robert Barron, who frequently quotes N.T. Wright. Um, and N.T. Wright is a classic supersessionist, you know, despite, and, you know, he's a friend. He's a wonderful man of God, and he's a fellow Anglican. And I, you know, um, um, uh, I love Tom, but I disagree with him on this. Uh, um, he's great on Israel up until 30 AD. He, he has taught the church that we can't explain the gospel without the history of Israel, that we can't just go from, from, from creation fall to Christ. No, we can't skip over the history of Israel as if it doesn't matter. And I thank God that Tom has taught, uh, you know, late 20th and now 21st century theology that. But after 30 AD, a Jewish Israel drops out of the picture. And Jewish Israel basically doesn't exist in terms of the history of, of Christ's redemption. Um, and I, that, he can do that only by hyper-spiritualizing everything uh, related to Israel um, in Old and, and the New Testament and redefining Israel as a church. Uh, you know, the church is the new Israel. Uh, of course, this is a very common way of thinking about the church for both Catholics and Protestants. And the, the but, but I would just as a little pushback there, uh, the word Israel appears 77 times in the New Testament. Uh, uh, nine of those times, it um, is in the word Israelite. And I would argue that every one of the 77 times, including Galatians 6.16, which is a big bugbear, um, it refers to the Jewish people uh, the Jewish polity, or that little strip of land that is um, uh, has been Jewish land, uh, you know, shared with you know, shared with Arabs. I gotta, I gotta ask, I gotta ask, gotta cut in, just because um, this is kind of, I mean, this is this is this is a little bit the territory I I camp out in uh, theologically, and I have trouble with the the idea that it's like conceptually calling it supersessionism, you know, simpliciter. This is, you know, I've kind of, you know, I came into Reformed theology and partially through, actually funny, Wright, Wright got me to read Calvin and then like other folks who he, he tries to correct repeatedly, but whatever. I think they're right. But uh, it, it's it's the idea that of, of, of the church being the Jew plus Gentile fulfillment of promises 
it's not so it's not the straight not like straight up supersessionism of of like okay well Jews don't matter it's now the church of Gentiles it's like well no this is what was always promised that the Gentiles would come in and now I mean like Ephesians two you know you've got this Jew plus Gentile blend in one new man uh, who is now uh, the temple who is now the full household of God who is now the family of God we're we're brothers and sisters in the household of God. Um, that whole, that doesn't seem quite as supersessiony, uh, in, 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 in that sense. And so I kind of would push on, I mean, how, you know, conceptually doesn't seem to quite fit the bill. Yeah. Yeah. Let sense. me just respond to that real quickly. And then Alistair probably wants to also. Uh, uh, first of all, and I'm glad you brought that up because <clears throat> I need to distinguish between hard, what's called hard and soft supersessionism. Soft supers, uh, all Orthodox Christians have to be soft supersessionists. That is, that the era that um, the era of the Church is the era that we would say in which uh, um, the Messiah has already come, and and this era has to supersede the era in which the Messiah had not yet come. Uh, so in that sense, we all have to be um, uh, supersessionists, uh, soft supersessionists. But hard, hard supersessionism is where you say, you look at Ephesians 2, and you say, not only is there a new man um, uh, that is composed of Jew and Gentile, um, but the distinction between Jew and Gentile has now been erased. And there are no more distinctions, and they're not important. It's not. Uh, it, um, it's not just important that Jew and Gentile can have table fellowship and be in the same church and be in the body of Christ. Um, but now that's that difference between Jew and Gentile is no longer important at all, not in any way whatsoever. Which, which I would argue, is the wrong view. You could maybe compare it to questions about Galatians three eight twenty eight. Is there no distinction between male and female in any sense at all now that we're one in Christ? Being one in Christ does not necessarily mean the breakdown of distinctions. It means the breakdown of certain divisions that would prevent us from being one in the sense of being united, not one in the sense of being indistinguishable, and um, that all the differences become indifferent. I think... It becomes complicated when we're trying to understand some of the biblical language, for instance, about the olive tree, which maintains certain distinctions where you have the natural branches and the grafted in branches. But at the same time, it's one olive tree. How do we understand the identity of Israel relative to that one olive tree? Right. And Tom's um, supersessionist view is to reduce everything to Christ. It's all Christ. Christ has fulfilled all the promises. But as Alistair has pointed out in one of his recent writings, that's to reduce the olive tree just to the root um, and, and, and to uh, ignore Paul's distinction in Romans 11 between the natural branches and the wild roots, uh, you know, who are the Gentiles, um, and, and to ignore everything that Paul says. Now, particularly in... In, in Romans 11. Paul can, you know, Paul, this is his most mature reflection on, on Jews and Gentiles and church. 
It's written just before the end of his life, maybe in 58 or so. Um, it's, it's many years after Galatians where he starts to uh, ruminate on Jew-Gentile distinctions and uh, you know the significance of the Messiah now. And in Romans 11 and in Romans 15, he's still talking about Jew-Gentile distinctions. He's not collapsing them into one new thing. Uh, yes, there's one new man, but not without distinctions. Uh, and as Alistair said, not without the distinction between male and female. And in Revelation, not without distinction between Jerusalem, which is at the center of the book of Revelation, from beginning to end, and the nations. Uh, you have the leaves for the healing of the nations. They, they are distinct uh, and still different languages uh, and tribes in Revelation 7. You have the 144,000 who are all Jews. And many readers of the New Testament don't realize that. But they're all Jews. And then the, the, the uh, multitude that no one can number who are all Gentiles. So you still have this Jewish-Gentile dis uh, you know, distinction at the end in, you know, in the eschaton. Even those who read uh, you know, Revelation in, in, in a preterist way, that all these things were fulfilled in the first century, uh, nevertheless, it's pointing to the future. And no matter how far the future out is, you know, 70 A.D. or 3000 A.D., the author of the book of Revelation, John, is uh, always keeps Jerusalem at the center of the eschaton in distinction from the nations. So it's the same thing. And I, this is the vision of Isaiah 2, that, that you got the nations of the whole world, but they're coming to Jerusalem to learn Torah. Uh, and... Uh, so Jerusalem's at the center of the world in the Old Testament and is still at the center of the world in the New Testament and in the eschaton. How do you believe that Christians should relate to um, unbelieving Jews or religious and also religiously observant um, Jews who reject Christ? Um, well, I'm not a dual covenant guy. Uh, I believe that no one will come to the Father except through the Messiah who is Jesus of Nazareth, who, by the way, is still Jewish at the right hand of the Father. The marks on his body are still there. Um, um, and I think in uh, we are to bear witness to Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, we, we have to have a special care and a special sensitivity in, in bearing witness to Jews, whom Paul says... God has sent upon them a partial hardening. And also since the Holocaust, when, when most Jews have relatives who were killed in the Holocaust by people they think of, and in some cases they might be right, as Christians who went to church on Sunday and killed Jews on Monday. And so for us to just jump into a conversation with a Jew and blithely talk about, well, don't you realize Jesus is the Messiah? When... Jews, when, when they hear the word Jesus, when they hear the word Messiah, when they hear the word church, when they hear the word Christianity, they smell the, um, the gas and the fumes from the fires of, of Auschwitz. They, they, it's, uh, it takes special, special, special sensitivity and love. So... Which brings me to another issue that that all so so I'll, I'll say this I'm still I'm still kind of in the other uh, kind of more 
I would say classic reformed, or at least what I've come to understand is classic reformed, soft supersessionism of the church doesn't replace Israel. It's the continuation or the fulfillment of etc. Jew plus Gentiles together are now the full Israel or are waiting, awaiting to be the full Israel. And partially because of those, those images that keep getting applied to, um, to the church that are old Testament images for Israel and all that kind of thing. Um, I, I'm there and I'm with you on when it, how it comes to, you know, evangelizing Jews in the same, in that sensitive way. Uh, I'm curious how this is distinct from, uh, or is it distinct from somebody who kind of holds this basic view and at the same time, maybe just holds, okay, I've, I've got this basic view, but I also just think that there's going to be a, a later influx, later conversion of uh, mass conversion of a large uh, portion of, of national Jews at the end time to kind of bring in the fullness of what currently is still, we can refer to as the church, Jew plus Gentile body as Israel as the the people of God because so much of you've got this eschatology where you've you've got in a sense the church as the transformed Israel you look at somebody like GK Beale who's got points out all these all these uh, images of Old Testament Israel that's reapplied to the church like the bride and all these sorts of things uh, how, how would that's that sounds pretty close like even somebody like Michael Horton will be like okay kind of in this camp of classic reform, et cetera. But I also do think there's going to be an influx of, of believing Jews into uh, the, the people of God who've been transformed in the new Testament. Cause he reads Romans 11, a certain way. Is that, yeah. I mean, would well, you, would you say, Oh, they're basically us. They just don't pay attention to the land or no, I, they I really have to do some deep rethinking. I agree. Paul says all Israel will be saved in, in Romans 11. And now, Tom Wright there, I disagree with Tom Wright's interpretation of that. Um, uh, you know, all these nuanced things in his recent massive book on Paul. Um, but, but he still, I believe, treats, uh, you know, Romans eleven twenty five. all Israel will be saved. There, uh, he treats Israel there as, as, as the new Israel of Jew and Gentile. But if you look at the context, the literary context of Romans 11 is very clear, I think, um, that Paul is talking about Jewish Israel. He's not talking about some new entity, uh, you know, the church. He's talking about Jewish Israel. And someday in the future, Jewish Israel, all Jewish Israel will be saved. Now, the rabbi said the same thing. You know, uh, this is a Mishnah. And no rabbi, or well, I shouldn't say none, but, but most of the rabbis didn't mean arithmetically every last Jew is going to be saved but but that a large you know that most of so so yeah I agree with these uh, um, reform folks uh, Catholic folks uh, all most uh, Protestant folks that, that that something special is going to happen in the future to Jewish Israel now where I disagree with most of them and where they're still supersessionists is the idea of God's covenant with Jewish Israel, which most of these guys, including Tom Wright, say is over. God is no longer in covenant with Jewish Israel, those who don't accept Jesus yet. That's classic supersessionism, and that's what I don't agree with. And I think Romans 11.28 clearly refutes it, 
because in Romans 11.28, Paul talks about the Jews who have not accepted um, Jesus as their Messiah yet. And Paul grieves over this. And Paul says, nevertheless, they are still beloved in God's eyes. Present tense. This is Paul towards the end of his life. They are still beloved in God's eyes, and their gifts and calling are irrevocable, cannot be revoked. Now, he's talking about the Jews who have not accepted Jesus yet. So it's, it's, it's very clear, I think, that for Paul, God's covenant with Jewish Israel, even those who haven't accepted Jesus yet, is still in place. Now, does that mean that they're all going to be saved? No, no. Uh, Paul talks about a remnant. But nevertheless, God's covenant is still in place, and that's what classic supersessionism denies. And then it also denies any theological significance uh, anymore to the land of Israel. And, and that, too, I disagree with, and I think the New Testament clearly refutes that, too. I think one of the questions I often find this coming back to is the role of how salvation relates not just to individuals, but to polities, larger bodies of people. Um, I think within a lot of Reformed theology, where there is a statement about future conversion of Jews, it's Jews as individuals um, being converted, rather than the idea that Israel as an entity might still have some significant, that, that God might deal not just with individuals, large masses of individuals indiscriminately spread across the earth, but that God deals with nations as entities and considers them as significant unities, not just as um, arbitrary sums of individuals. I think that's one of the shifts that you see, I think, that makes it very difficult for us to read the Old Testament well, because nations and bodies of, in, of, bodies of persons as polities, not just as sums of individuals, are very important in the Old Testament. And even within the New, I think, when you start to read the New Testament in the light of such concern, it makes a lot more sense that God is concerned not just with indiscriminate bodies of individuals, but Rome is playing a very significant part. It's not just um, any old empire. It's something that represents the fulfillment of a series of empires. It's a world order that God is addressing as a specific entity, not just as an arbitrary sum of individuals. Likewise with Israel, um, Greece, these other entities that we tend to um, reduce down to our individualistic understanding of salvation and Christianity. Right, but that, that raises the question, though, and this is where this is where I'm having trouble. Forgive me I, for uh, needing some conceptual clarity here. Um, in the Old Testament, we have this conceptual overlap between Israel, the people of God, God's covenant people, you know, etc. And then we get to the New Testament, and that that gets that gets shuffled somehow, because all of a sudden, all these people who weren't God's people are now God's people. They're they're in the covenant. They have all the covenant blessings. They are they are uh, they are co heirs. They used to be alienated. Now they're not. They're fellow citizens when they weren't. And so there there's all these people these these non Jews who are at the same time have a claim on all the same covenantal promises according to Paul. 
uh, in in Ephesians two and other places. And the church we look at and we call we look at the church you know, across time space etc. We say oh that's one spiritual people to some degree that, that that's the, that's the people of God that's the bride of Christ that's all these things and so that it's the reshuffling of the status of the what what is coterminous like the Israel is no longer uniquely coterminous with the people of God. And so in the sense that there's a lot more now uh, and there's a lot more nations included. And so the question of like, okay, when I'm referring to the church right now, it's not like, okay, the extra addition to the people of God, is it the people of God continued waiting for the influx of the originals? Like, you know, that that level of, of the relationship between the two, because we don't want to say there's two covenants, and I don't want to say God's promises are irrevocable, but I look at look at the church and I say, um, they are the spiritual descendants of 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 Israel. Like I have David, and I have a, I have Abraham. Like as a as a Hispanic Palestinian who's engrafted into the people of God, I have Abraham as my father, somehow, in a way. And so that's why I'm I'm kind of like shading shading the relationship there, right, Alistair, Jerry. How would you guys, you know? Yeah, let, that distinction. How would you I'm, guys concrete? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. What you have just articulated, Derek, is the classic um, view, which is that in the Old Testament, uh, salvation is sort of limited to the Jews and Israel, and in the New Testament, salvation is available to the nations. And thank God that we had the New Testament, because otherwise, uh, if you're not a Jew, you can't be saved. Um, I would say that is um, not um, a good reading of the Bible. Uh, I'd say in the Old Testament, well, well, do you want to jump in and uh, have I misrepresented yeah, I, you? I, I, I probably I, have. I, yeah, I want to clarify. I'm, 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 I'm fine with, I, I'm, fi- I'm not scandalized by particularity. I know why God does, you know, calls one covenant people and he's right. got one covenant. Right. All that, that's, that doesn't bug me. That doesn't. Right. What I'm trying to get a hold of is, okay, but now when I think about the church in relation to, the church is the people of God, and the nation of Israel is the people of God in some other, in some sense. They're both the people of God in right, some sense. Right. I'm, 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 trying to get, uh, I'm trying to get a picture on like who gets included in what. Yeah, yeah. Like, can I respond uh, to that? You know, yeah. Yeah. All right. So like so, how, how you would – so. Hierarchy of, of I, categories. I, I'd say, uh, yeah, yeah. The classic view to, and and thanks for your clarification. I probably misunderstood, it, but but you're presenting the classic view that in the Old Testament, the the Jews are the people of God and not the Gentiles. In the New Testament, it's it's Jesus opening up to the Gentiles as the people of God. So the whole world can be the people of God. And I would argue, in contradistinction, that in the Old Testament, God has always been concerned about the nations, and it's clear throughout the Old Testament. But he, he brings, he, he, um, he saves the world in the Old Testament through Israel. Uh, through the mediation of Israel, he communicates yeah. himself in his fullness to Israel, and he tells Israel, "Go out and bring me to the nations." It starts in in Genesis twelve three. Uh, I am calling you, you Abraham and your progeny, so that you might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. 
And I would argue it continues throughout the Old Testament. You know, uh, Dave, uh, well, the Exodus, um, God says, I am bringing you out so that all the nations may know. Uh, you know, David is raised up. He's often praying for the nations. Solomon is praying for the nations, that all the nations would come to Israel and know the true God. And, and you have the same thing in the New Testament. God uh, is wanting to reach the nations through, as Tom Wright rightly says, the perfect Israelite. So um, it's the same pattern in Old, Old and New Testament. Uh, God wants the whole world to be his people, but he uses the particularity of Israel and the perfect Israelite through whom, uh, through whose mediation, he reaches uh, the nations. Right, and I, I'm, I'm through with. I'm, I'm good with all that. I guess what I'm, okay. I'm trying to clarify okay. is, I, I'm, I, you know, all, all that. That's, that's me. Okay. But when it comes to the New Testament, when it comes to now, when I think of non-Jewish Christians, do we say these are? I mean, yeah, I guess in a sense. Oh, you are you are part of the people. You're 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 just a wild branch who's been grafted, but you're still on the same you're still on the same vine. Ergo, you're people of God by way of grafting, in a sense. We have we Gentiles. I'm a Gentile like you. I'm not a Jew. Um, we we have been grafted into the olive tree of Israel um, by adoption. We, we are not natural sons of Abraham. We, we are sons of Abraham, but by adoption. We're adopted members of the family of Abraham, which is the family of God. Using that particular analogy, maybe it helps to unpack it a bit more, that you can talk about a family that, um, when we think in the Old Testament, God chooses Abraham and blesses Abraham in juxtaposition with the judgment upon the nations at the time of Babel. So the nations are scattered as a result of a curse, and then this new nation is formed as a result of a blessing that God calls by his name. And God forms this people, so it's not just all the descendants of Abraham that become part of this. Um, you have a number of people like Ishmael, Esau, um, and others who um, form their own people. And I think along with that, there's this clear line of succession that the covenant follows where it's focusing on um, Abraham for a while then Isaac and then it moves on to Jacob and as it were the spotlight focuses upon Jacob as he moves on and that people is formed from Jacob's offspring that's called Israel Jacob's name being changed to Israel as we did in a recent episode I think that people is that firstborn family it's taken out of Egypt and described as God's firstborn now, it's not going to be the only child within the family. God adopts these other nations in, but that doesn't mean that the firstborn ceases to be the firstborn and all that that firstborn represents or just becomes uh, an indiscriminate mass of individuals. Rather, it retains a significance, but it's not the only one within the family. All the nations are being blessed through Abraham and being joined into his family, but the different family members remain distinct in different ways. And in the same way, I'd say that we see something of this even within characters that drop out of, seemingly drop out of the picture, but I don't think they fully drop out of the picture. Characters like Ishmael and Esau, I don't think 
they are ever just abandoned and left behind, they retain a significance within the story. And there are hints that these characters remain important. God has a purpose for these nations too. And I think we see this within the New Covenant, that God's indications within the Old Testament, that he was always interested in the nations, not just in Israel, and that Israel was being blessed in order that the nations might be blessed, that that comes to fruition, not in a way that distinguishes the purposes of nations, but in a way that brings them to a greater fulfillment, that the differences between the nations are not fundamentally going to be expressed in forms of division that we see in the Old Covenant between one nation in, one other nations out, but as they're united, those differences take on a new aspect, no longer divisions, but different aspects of a unity that we all have in Christ. Um, um, Derek, could I recommend to your listeners a, a quick and dirty way to get into this? Yeah, that's what we love doing. <laughs> There's the big book, academic book, The New Christian Zionism, but most people, I think, most of your listeners would prefer to read a little book that I wrote called Israel Matters. And I wrote it purposely for people in the pew, um, not for fellow theologians, but I find my fellow theologians prefer it to the big book. <laughs> I, it sounds like I, w- I would, too, just, you know. I don't know all those other people. I know you. I want to read what you wrote. So, uh, yeah, no, and that's actually kind of a perfect segue. I don't think we have wrapped everything up, uh, but that's okay. This was a great show Thank you for coming on. This was so this was so helpful and stimulating. Well, you're welcome, and thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and so you I mean you you already heard we were going to announce those books again, but the 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 new Christian wait new Christian Zionism and then also Israel Matters. Correct. And all right, and so Israel Matters is the little one. The little one. We will have links to both of those books in the show notes at mereorthodoxy.com. So go ahead and pick those up. Uh, read, engage, be challenged. That's hopefully what happens on every show is that you are challenged and stimulated and 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 pushed to engage more with God's word. Uh, but thanks for coming on and thanks for listening. If you are especially again a Patreon supporter, thank you for all that you do. If you'd like to join in on that, uh, we have a link for how to do that on the show notes at mereorthodoxy.com. But for now, we are grateful for your time. We're grateful for your ears and your support. Uh, This has been Mere Fidelity.